I hope you remember me. I don't think you would have had any other Armenian uh, guest preachers with a thick eyebrow, so it's, it's me again. Um, last time, family was busy, so, so I'm really glad it worked out. They were able to come. Um, Trina is my bride of a bit over 14 years. Uh, Ezra turns 11 next Sunday, so if you want to say happy birthday early to him, you can do that. Uh, Kai is almost four upstairs, and... and uh, our little one, Isaiah Orion, comes in, in a few weeks, and yet, uh, as I shared with you last time, it seems that um, God arranged things that he has a direct flight to heaven, so he's going to do a brief stop over here with us. Um, doctor said trisomy 13, and, and so we don't know if he'll drop by or he'll go straight to heaven or how short our time Will be so so that's where we are that is why we're here we we need this and so as you sing loud the goodness of god um i need to hear that as well and so if you want to hear more we we shared a little bit in our recent ministry newsletter um you, you can send me an email remain with us at gmail.com say hey i, I want to follow the newsletter you know keep me in the loop remain with us at gmail or if you want to hear some specific prayer requests for our family during this time. You can let me know as well. One more thing, I put up a stand in the back with a QR code for a devotional that I'm working on that I'm going to launch on November 1. So this message is part of that. Uh, I was really burdened a few months ago to write a devotional going through Isaiah to 40 to 48. So I'm working on 31 daily readings and reflections as well as a 10, 15 minute teaching podcast, just teaching through Isaiah 40 to 48, little by little. It's called honey and gold because the Bible is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. So you can scan to, to RSVP and I'll send you the information with that. Does anyone want to pray for the message before I start? Anyone from where you're sitting just, just to pray for this time for this message? Any volunteers? Ain't going anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm encouraged by your preaching series, Bad Theology. When Pastor Devin uh, emailed me with some information, I was encouraged because I'm glad this is on his radar. And, and I'm, I was encouraged because this is where we are right now. And, and even before he said that, I was already preparing this message. And I think where I was going to go fits with where you guys are going already. So I think God was providentially at work. But as he was pointing out, sometimes bad theology, uh, overly simple, overly one-dimensional theology can be more hurtful than helpful. When we come up with very cute and simple explanations of really big truths, it sounds like framed pictures you would find in a cheesy Christian bookstore, 
more than the kind of theology that's going to hold us from crumbling in our hardest of seasons. And so when he said that, I realized that one of our core, one of our four core values with the the Remain ministry is both and. Not either or, but both and. Values that just has been in our conversation at home for years. So when we look at suffering, it, it feels like God is absent and, and at the same time, God is present. It, it feels that it's pointless. And at the same time, God is wise. With wisdom, he is at work. And so we're aware that lament and trust are not on opposite teams. It's a both and. Coming with doubt, coming with questions, and having faith in God are not on opposite teams. And so we're trying to hold both. And the way that we combat poor or bad theology or overly simplified theology is with big God theology. And that is why I want to direct your attention to the book of Isaiah, because there are no quick band-aids, no easy answers to suffering, no cute responses, no easily untangling. You don't wrap it up and put a bow on top. It is hard. It is messy. It is mysterious. And we need to be okay with sitting in the mystery when we can't completely figure out what God is doing. And so last time we went to Job chapter 3 to sit and lament, and we, we also faced that season of lament and suffering by receiving a big God theology, because this is what holds us together. This is what keeps me now this season and our family and the church from crumbling. This is what holds us together. So what is God doing in my own life? He is convicting me of thinking small thoughts of him during such times. I wonder if that's familiar to you. Small thoughts which are not innocent and childlike, but are actually dishonoring and unworthy of him. J.B. Phillips, Bible translator from the 1950s, wrote a convicting little book called Your God is Too Small. He starts up mentioning that Christians at times have childish conceptions of God that won't survive five minutes in real life. And he says his goal in writing to expose the inadequate conceptions of God which still linger unconsciously in many minds and which prevent our catching a glimpse of the true God. To expose inadequate conceptions so that instead we get a glimpse of God. We have small thoughts of God that are inadequate for this life. Or, Tozer, pastor and author of the first half of the 20th century, cautions us about weird ideas we have about idols. Idols, he says, are not just those wooden statues of the pagan people in the backward parts of the world. He says the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Our idols, when we entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. Are you convicted as well? We're thinking small thoughts, considering unacceptable, warped ideas compared to who God really is. And so, and so Isaiah 40, because your soul depends on it. We need big truths to combat our small thoughts of him. Thoughts about what seems to be the lack of his presence in our lives. Small thoughts about his power and purpose, his goodness and wisdom. We need to see these and confess them. 
big truths about God expose our faulty thinking to bring us to a place of confession. A much-needed session of unlearning so that instead we learn truths of God as he puts our hearts back together to a place of comfort. And so we come with confession and we leave with comfort. Verse 1 speaks of this. And then at the end of the chapter, it speaks of strength, comfort and strength. So this chapter, this message brings confrontation and also offers rich comfort. For example, we have small thoughts and some hesitations when it comes to God's comfort, right? We can't imagine that he will bring real comfort to losers like us. The gospel is too good to be true, so we think. But it really is. And so we see comfort in verses 1 to 11. We have small thoughts about the greatness of God, mediocre at best. We come with casual, overly familiar hearts, which are actually unthinkable compared to the incomparable God, the wise creator of all things, the Lord over history, whose purposes are unmoved. And so we see the greatness of God in 20, 12 to 26. We have small thoughts about the help that he can provide. Does he know what I'm going through? Does he care? Can he come through? And Isaiah, who pointed to the creator and Lord above all, shows us that God comes to us as if to kneel and look at us at eye level and says, I got this. He will replace our weakness with surprising strength. He could instantly remove all sorrow and make all things perfect, but he does something better. He gives us the strength to endure. So we get the strength and he gets the glory. Isaiah 40 is like opening a book right in the middle and trying to make sense of it. After the nation split into two during King David's grandson, Isaiah had 20 wicked kings in Judah, mostly wicked, just a few righteous. And in the midst of the 8th century, around 740 BC, Isaiah starts his ministry. He was called to minister to a people bent out of shape with hearts hardened against God. And God had already warned them that exile was coming if they continue this way. But did they listen? Some years later, Assyria comes to power and destroys Israel and took the people into exile around 722 B.C. And a century later, the Assyrian Empire comes to an end and the Babylonian Empire is launched. Fast forward a bit, 586 Babylon comes, takes Judah to exile. And that's it. Everything's gone. Everyone's gone. What about, what about the promises of the covenant? Are, are the purposes of God falling apart? What about the promises to Abraham? It seems that their way is hidden from the Lord. Has he disregarded instead of saved? Well, in chapters 1 to 39, it's almost entirely dark. Just judgment. Something happens in 40. We saw judgment, we see hope. Not just for Judah, but for the whole world. And no sooner are the words of judgment given and pronounced in 39 that the words of comfort come. In 39.6, nothing shall be left. Three verses later, comfort. Comfort, my people. You see, starting with 40 to 48, Isaiah, who lives in the 8th century, has in a sense gone back to the future. 
to give a word of comfort to people living in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. So imagine he's dealing with the Assyrians, falls asleep in a sense, and he gets a message from God about the coming servant who would later be Cyrus the Persian, and he wakes up about 150 years later to give a message to the people in exile. Let me say that again. He's doing ministry in this century. Isaiah 40 to 48 is a message for a people generations later who are at a very different place. So he's getting a message of hope that the people are going to need on that day. A message of hope for future exiled people into a worldwide audience under the weight of sin and suffering. And so here, here in these verses is God from God's eyes. If we see God from our eyes, we'll miss something or we'll diminish him. But if we look at God from God's eyes, everything changes. So here we see three big truths about God in Isaiah 40, if you're going to write this down. In 1 to 11, we see God coming with glory to comfort. God comes with glory to comfort a messed up people. God com comforts with his glory. Next section in 12 to 26, we see this incomparable God who created and rules over all things. God who can't be compared creates and rules and that brings assurance that the comfort is real. And at the very end, 27 to 31, we see him offering strength to those who wait. So let's start with the beginning. Verse 1, follow with me. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. God calls Isaiah to speak tenderly to a people with a loud declaration of the gospel. And in a most unexpected turn of events, we hear the gospel. This is a sudden, drastic U-turn. Warfare has ended. So the time of hardship and misery has expired. Sin is paid for. Even God is saying enough is enough. The people have received this just punishment and it's time for the gospel good news to come. In the midst of this, what exactly is the promise of comfort to a bruised exile community living years after Isaiah? What do they need to hear? What is this comfort, comfort? Verse 3 to 5. God is coming in glory. Get ready. Prepare the way. Move forward with this spiritual spring cleaning. Some things need to be adjusted. Some dark thoughts, odd assumptions, small ideas need to be gotten rid of. Things need to change. We need valleys raised and hills brought low and the rough made smooth. The prideful brought down. The humble lifted. We need to turn things upside down in order to receive the kingdom of God. There is a dis Eruption of repentance, a leveling and lowering necessary for the king to come. Here is the center of the message. Because to the disappointed, dismissed, disillusioned people, those who seem to be cast away and crossed off, Isaiah speaks of coming glory. The Hebrew word for glory means respect and honor and majesty and weight. The weightiness of God is his glory. The, the heaviness of God. So how will God be glorified if we diminish the heaviness and seriousness and beauty and perfections? Let us 
confess a deep-rooted attitude of triviality before God. Because God is glorious, and He displays His glory in creation. He displays His glory in the providential working through history. He, He displays His glory perfectly in the person of Christ, who came full of grace and truth. The passage is such a breathtaking perspective of God from God that the people can't keep quiet. He says, go, lift your voice, be fearless, with the heart of truth and love towards all people, be messengers of this needed comfort by declaring, behold your God. What a message. So, stop listening to yourselves and refuse the familiar welcome of small thoughts and twisted assumptions as to who he is and how he works. Declare this first and foremost to your weary hearts and say, soul, listen up. Behold your God. In the midst of utter brokenness, when your soul is weary with sorrow, soul, listen up. Behold your God. Because this is what he is doing. This is how we are going to survive. Now look at 10 and 11. You see the, see the arm of the Lord? In other words, the arm of the Lord is the strength of the Lord. So with incredible strength, he rules. And we see that later in the chapter. And it says, with incredible strength, again with his arm, he tenderly cares like a shepherd towards his sheep. He will tend to them gather them, carry them, even gently lead those that are carrying young. Do you need that reminder today? His greatness is displayed in the way he's able to rule at the 10,000 foot level, but also in a tender-hearted, compassionate way to you and me. Now, can we trust this? Can we trust this comfort that's coming when he comes with glory? Yes, because of verses 6 to 8. Can this be trusted? Yes, because all flesh is grass. Isaiah, what's your sermon today? All flesh is grass. Okay, that's it. Fragile, short, weak. And that's where we are right now. With this constant reminder that our physical bodies are just grass here today and gone tomorrow, but God is far more. You see this loud, but God that, that he is strong and enduring, and so is his word that will never pass away. His promises never expire. So when God speaks, his word expresses the truth, and that truth cannot be annulled or changed. Don't rush away from that point. Let that sink in. The word of God that you have heard is truth that will remain. And so while in verses 1 to 11 we see this comfort, the comfort from a God coming in glory, the next section from 12 to 26 brings us the assurance that we need. Because our first reaction is to assume that this is too good to be true. We have days that we doubt God's goodness, don't we? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Because it's, it's a little bit easier, maybe, in my opinion, to trust in his presence or power. But when it comes to his goodness, sometimes that's different. Sometimes we struggle with that first and foremost. Because our assumptions of what goodness looks like and goodness feels like doesn't match up with what God says. But 
Will we make conclusions about God in light of our circumstances that we're facing, or, or will we make conclusions about our circumstances based on the God that we know from Scripture? Far too long we praise God when all is good and doubt God when life is hard because we assumed he didn't answer our prayers. How about we flip that around on its head and we start with an Isaiah 40 perspective on life. And so while 1 to 11 we see God coming with glory to comfort, here we see an incomparable God, a God who creates all things and rules over all things. And this brings us the assurance that that promise is reliable. Now, this section, he could have been building in a logical order, A, B, C, D, but he doesn't. He's, he's a bit more creative than that. And so he goes in circles. And so when you look at this section, when you see 12 to 14, we see that he is a wise creator. And at the very end, in 25, 26, we see that he's a watchful creator. But then we move a little bit closer to the middle. And in 5 to 15 to 17, we see that he's the Lord over the nations. And 21 to 24, that he is sovereign over the rulers. And that brings us to the middle, to the climax. In verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? Read Isaiah 40 to 48 and underline all the references that speak about how God cannot be compared. First, that he is the creator can he can we trust can we trust that he's going to comfort can we trust that he's going to come with glory to comfort us yes because he is a wise and watchful creator over all things who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance who has measured the spirit of the lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? 14 verses, 15 questions. Questions to make you think. Imagine this. God takes water in all the puddles and lakes and rivers and seas and oceans of the world and he holds them in the hollow of his hand. You barely hold water in your hand when you're going to rinse your mouth after you brush your teeth. He holds water, all of it. Peel away the layers of indifference that has blinded you and wake up from the drowsiness and open the eyes of your heart. Stretch your vision to see the bigness of God. That is what saves you from bad theology. Or look at your hand, stretch out your fingers, look at the space between the edge of your thumb and your pinky. We use this mode of measurement to calculate space when we're going to build furniture from Ikea, right? We measure we, the, the desk or the wall or whatever is needed. God does the same, but instead he measures the heavens. Think about it this way. The heavens are so big that we can't describe it using feet or yards or miles. So we come up with light years, okay? And from the little that I know about this, I could be wrong, but from what I read, a light year, it, light travels at 299 kilometers a second. And if light kept traveling, right, not just for a minute or an hour or a day, but in a whole year at that speed, that's called a light year. 
And our tiny solar system with a handful of planets is part of the Milky Way galaxy. And that galaxy is 104,000 light years across. So God sees that and uses the thumb to pinky measurement to measure that out, along with billions of other galaxies. Or take the hills and the mountains. He God is able to take the Appalachian and the Himalayas and Ararat and Everest and measure them. Measure them on his scale. Weighs them without a problem. Think about how big and beautiful he is as creator. Who can, who can comprehend and unravel his wisdom? So with your particular story today, with that issue you're facing, you might be wondering, does God know what he's doing? Where is wisdom in this? He is the creator of all. His wisdom cannot be figured out and unraveled. Just because we don't get it, doesn't mean he doesn't get it. Just because we might not see a purpose, doesn't mean there's no purpose. I love this quote by Alec Matir, uh, whose commentary and devotional on Isaiah we've gone through several times. Matir says, but please remember, our inability to discern does not mean there is no discernment at work. Our inability to see point or purpose does not mean there is no point or purpose. Never pointless. Nothing in life. Blessings or suffering, nothing pointless. It might seem or feel pointless. It might seem to them that exile was pointless, but before God, there is always a greater purpose at play. And so, verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I shall be like him, says the Holy One. And then in 26, he says, God created the stars. If you go camping away from all this artificial and excessive light, you might, with a really good telescope, count a few thousand stars. Maybe. There are, I think, 200 billion trillion stars. God put them there one by one, Gave them each a name. My parents gave me a name. But even till today, my mom will first call me by her brother's name, then my brother, then my dad, and then she'll remember, wait, what's your name? God gives them each a name. Even with the Hubble Space Telescope, we only see a very, very small amount. And he talks about the stars, but the closest one is the sun. The sun that at its surface is a cool 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, a bit hotter than what we have in our homes during the hot heat waves here. But at the center, it's about a, just, just 27 million Fahrenheit. But there are, but in the sun, the earth can fit 100 times. 100 earths can fit in that giant sun. And get this, there are stars out there that are 1,500 times larger than the size of our sun. Just one other star that he names, that is not falling apart, that he holds together, he sustains. And if this is the kind of God that we have, who can hold the waters, who can count the stars, if he is the creator like that, all the more, he cares for you, even you, even you today with what you're facing. One author said, you are dwarfed by the world. The world is dwarfed by the universe. 
The universe is dwarfed by God. This God is caring for you. He is the creator of all and he is the Lord over all. We can trust his promise of comfort that he comes in glory because he's the creator, also because he is the Lord over all. Follow with me, 15 to 17 and then 21 to 24. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. If the nations were, they're like a drop from a bucket. You're, you're carrying a bucket of water. You're going to go wash your car and you move the wrong way and just a few drops splash out. You don't panic. You don't try to pick up the droplets of water that fell out. It's insignificant. We don't panic about that. And that kind of smallness is compared to the Assyrian Empire, Babylonian and Persian and Greek and Roman and everything else. Nothing, no threat to his purpose. Not that he says they're not valuable, but compared to his power, they are not a problem. They are not a threat. They are nothing, less than nothing. And so God is infinitely greater and more powerful and more beautiful and we're called to open our eyes and stretch our perspective and to behold him. And he goes to 16. What if we plan the biggest and best Old Testament style worship service? What would that be like? You know, we would need a lot of animals for sacrifice. We call up Lebanon. We send a contract. We get the cedar wood. We get all the cattle. That would not be enough. He's far, far greater, and our worship is far, far smaller. And yet he is so good that he accepts the worship that we sing this morning to him. 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes them the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The promise of comfort from our glorious God is 100% guaranteed because he is the creator of all and the Lord over all. Don't we know this? Haven't you heard? Is this sinking in? He sits enthroned above all. Next to his greatness, we are grasshoppers. Actually, less than that. Because it's not that he's a little bit ahead of us on the road. He's on a different road altogether. A tozer gave this picture and said, there's a great difference between a caterpillar and an archangel. But even that difference is finite. The greatness of God above the archangel, well, that's infinite. That's something else. That's something beyond. He is enthroned above all things. So, so follow with me. Take, take all the leaders in the world today. Kings, presidents, queens, prime ministers. Take, take all the billionaires, the CEOs, and the cultural influencers. Take celebrities and athletes and musicians. Are they really in charge? Do they really have influence forever? 
He brings them to the level of nothing. He makes them empty, verse 23. And in, in the midst of the most intense periods of church history, Luther wrote a song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph over us, to triumph through us. The prince of darkness is grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One word from God brings down the enemy. And now we see that he is the creator of all things, the Lord over all things, and he's incomparable to all things. Look at 18 to 20. Look at this exclamation point right in the middle of the passage, the climax of all things. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness to compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsman overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In other words, God is God and you're not. If we're going to compare two things, we put them next to each other and we start listing similarities and differences. So if we put God on one side, what will we put? Who will we put on the other side to compare him? Nothing and no one because God is God and we are not. Let us abstain from tame and domesticated versions of God. We can try, but will miserably fail to try and unpack him and sort of put him in nice, neat categories. We can try and decipher and analyze and categorize. God is beyond that. We want to figure him out, honestly, so that we can approve or disapprove of what he is doing. But we can't. Who are we kidding? With our small thoughts, we're committing idolatry. Two sections of God as creator. Then in the middle, two sections of him being Lord. What's the point? So that we would see and embrace and hold fast to and be held by a God who is incomparable. We cannot compare him. And this brings us to the final section. This is big, but also personal. Good news for the world, but good news for you today. And I hope that this final section not only confronts you, but comforts you. Truth that will break you, but also help you. Remember, we're the type to make conclusions about God based on what we're feeling. And, and like us, the people at the time looked around themselves in exile and responded with questions and doubt and frustration and despair. Our way is hidden from the Lord. Our right is being disregarded by this God. In exile, they were starving for nourishment from biblical teaching. In exile, they were wondering if God's covenant promises had ended and expired or slipped through the cracks. Wondering if the purposes of God faced some kind of obstacle or delay. Have we ever thought that? And to them and to us, Isaiah says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. The Lord is the everlasting God, not bound by time. He always is. He's not bound by space. In other words, there's no place he is not. There's no time he is not. Again, the commentator Alec Matir says, he lacks neither energy nor commitment. 
His strength does not ebb away, nor does he tire of the task in hand. God does not grow tired or weary. He does 10,000 things without taking a nap or a cup of coffee. Has God forgotten? Impossible. He doesn't grow weary. We do. Even the young, the healthy, the seemingly strong, incredibly limited. We are the weary ones with sorrow. We are overcome with stress, and that's okay. Because we don't do well with weakness, do we? We we try to avoid talking honestly about weakness. And you know why we've realized, my wife and I, that we are allergic to weakness. And this is a huge problem that's being ignored here. We're allergic to weakness and we idolize strength. So so worship, uh, strength we love. Strength we worship. Oh, we notice people have strength, right? We're impressed by that. And yet, how damaging can that be to our spiritual life? If one more person misquotes Philippians 4.13, I'll drink decaf coffee for the rest of the week. I can do all things, right? It's more like a sports commercial. But the Greek says, through him who gives me strength, I can do all things. The hero is not, I can do all things. The, The hero is through him. And what is the all things? Is it about sports or life? It's about contentment and suffering. Because he says, I've learned to be content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in poverty or in riches, in whatever situation, God enables him, strengthens him to be content. That is what we are dealing with. We are weak, and yet, O child of God, there is hope. This is all entirely about God. And our response, the only application here, is that we learn to wait. Waiting is what we do with our faith, being stretched beyond what we thought we could handle. Waiting is what we do with our faith until God shows up. We wait because we have a God who's coming with glory, who cares as a shepherd, who is wisely upholding all things, who cannot be compared, who's working through history for his greater purposes. And so for this God, we wait. And as we wait, something happens. You don't run out of your spiritual battery. You get stronger. Our weakness is replaced with his strength, not so that we can be strong. We will continue to be weak, but have His strength in us. And so where is the glory of God from verse 5 other than the strengthening of weary Christians who don't think they can handle this anymore? Because Isaiah points to this God of comfort and glory. He's the Lord of all, and He can strengthen you in Christ now. This is where the glorious God is at work. When we feel to be at the height of our weakness, Now listen, if this weakness was quickly removed, the potential danger is our self-sufficiency and self-reliance and self-centeredness, and that is really dangerous. And so maybe in our weakness, God is up to something, making us limp and lean on Him so that we live not on our strength, but on the strength He provides through Christ. And so let's wait. Let's continue to wait here. And as we do so, He will enable you to soar like on the wings of eagles. And if you can, and that's too much, he will strengthen you to run without growing faint. 
And if you don't think you can run, He will enable you to walk without falling over. And if you're not sure if and how you can walk anymore, then He will strengthen you to remain. Two questions here. What do you need to confess? In light of the warped or odd assumptions and small thoughts that you've been dealing with this whole time, what do you need to confess and get right before God? And number two, what do you need to be comforted by? Remember, he wrote this for a people living generations after him to comfort them about the bigness of God. What is the one truth, the one point, the one attribute of God that you need to trust in more today so that while you walk in weakness, you will receive his strength? And so, Father, I pray that all the people here, with whatever they are going through, that they would behold you in all your glory and truth, that they would peel away and leave alone aside any small thoughts, dark thoughts, weird thoughts they have about you, and accept your own insistence of who you are. May they see you as the creator of all and the Lord overall and incomparable to all. May they wait upon you to receive strength, that glory that's coming when you show up. And so, Father, I pray that we would not quickly move on from here. May we sit in this a while longer. May this sink in our hearts a while longer. Please help us now. In Jesus' name we pray.